Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 10, verse 30. Told a story about one of our young people who a couple weeks ago when his mom said turn to John 10, gave him the verses, he said, are we still in that? Well, we may be through with John 10 today. Not promising, but we may be. Uh, We have looked at it rather thoroughly, and I want to look at this last section. More verses than normally we would take. But I want to uh, unpack that just a little bit and think about what Jesus is saying here. Remember, it's very important that we remember that everything that's going on now in Jesus' ministry and life is, is under the shadow of the cross at this point. Early on, he was doing his miracles and he was doing uh, his, the signs that John talks about. And, and most people were not thinking about the cross. He knew it was coming. But he's been more and more preparing his disciples for Calvary. He's been more and more preparing them from, for that which is to come and, and that has not yet arrived. But he knows it's coming. He sees it's coming. And there's a great stir among the people. Hear what is said in this passage, picking up really with the last verse we looked at two weeks ago and reading through the end of the chapter, verse 30. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. It's a pretty strong charge. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? Did you pick up on that in the scripture reading from Psalm 82? Did that sound just a little strange to your ears? That's why I had Ricky read that this morning. I want you to hear that because that's what Jesus quotes here to establish authority on what he's doing. Interesting turn. I hope we can clarify that a little bit. Has it not been written in your law? I said, you are gods, and he called them gods to whom the word of God came. And then parenthetically, and the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to a place where John was baptizing, and he was staying there. And many came to him. Notice that many came to him. This is where it all started, you remember? When John baptized Jesus, that was the beginning of his ministry. When John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and pointed to him and all of his disciples saw him after he was baptized. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, no miracles, yet everything John said about this man is true. Many believed in him there in that place, that place beyond the Jordan. A lot's taking place 
in this passage of Scripture. Some of it there in Jerusalem, some of it then as Jesus excuses himself and, and eludes their grasp and moves away. But there's several things I want you to see as the, as the very center of this and the very necessary points that we must take away from this text. This past week I was reading again one of my favorite books for just devotional reading. is D.A. Carson's A Call to Spiritual Reformation. It's a, it's a, it's a study on the prayers of Paul and, and shows how in Paul's prayers he he just shows what he's praying for for God's people. And it's a spiritual reformation. It's a spiritual growth. But I was, I was caught again. I'm not sure this is even original with Carson. But I was caught again on page 109 when Carson said this. He said, if God had perceived our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. We seem to see our needs today as being economic. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. Some people today think that's our biggest need, even in churches. And so they entertain and try to be comedians. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. And obviously he hasn't sent us any of those. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion our death, and he sent us a Savior. That's the crux of this passage here. These religious leaders are so caught up in their law, they're so caught up in their religion, they're so caught up in their ritual that they think they've got it all. They think their needs have been met, not by their, because they have a need for a Savior, which they do, but because they think they're their own Savior. You know, we live in a day that really looks at life pretty much that way. We live in a day when a lot of people think, hey, I, I'm, I'm doing well myself. I'm saving myself. I'm taking care of myself. And many of them are sitting in, in church houses this morning and, and singing hymns that talk about the sufficiency of God's grace, and they'll talk about God's grace, but they really don't even acknowledge that they need God's grace. They really think they're pretty good without God. They're doing a pretty good job on their own. Jesus comes to this point and he says, the fa- I and the Father are one. Six little words in verse 30, six little words that cause all this commotion, cause all this calamity, but really are at the very heart of the matter. I and the Father are one. I and God are one. You see the response of the people here, and the thing the response of the, of the Jewish leaders show us is it shows the extreme nature of, of human behavior, literally the extreme wickedness of human nature and human behavior. They immediately respond. They don't examine. They don't think about it. They don't say, well, in light of what you have done, maybe that's true. They don't even take a moment. They immediately react. Their sinful hearts immediately react to righteousness. Can you imagine Someone like Jesus Christ coming into the world, the most righteous man that has ever lived, the only righteous man that has ever lived, the only man who was sinless, had no guile about him, no animosity toward anybody, and he stood before them, and because of his purity, they rejected him? They didn't reject him because they saw evil in him. They didn't reject him because they saw a mean spirit in him. Just the opposite. They saw none of that, and they're rejecting it. It's because... Human nature is at its heart extremely wicked and cannot tolerate being in the presence of godliness. 
cannot tolerate being in the presence of purity and perfection and love and grace, and it reacts against it unless the Spirit of God operates upon that heart. It's just the way it is, and that's what these people do. They pick up stones. They want to kill him. They want to seize him. They want to take him into, into their control so they can shut him up. And when they start trying to do that, he looks at them and he says, look, I want you to see what I've done. Just look at the works. I say I am the Father one. I say I'm the Son of God. I say I'm from the Father. You don't want to hear that, but just look at the deeds that I've done. I've healed a blind man from birth. I've turned water into wine. I've fed 5,000 people. I've done all of the, I've, I've healed a crippled man, told him to take up his, his pallet and walk. I mean, all of these things you've seen me do, for which of those deeds are you crucified? Are, are you wanting to stone me? Are you wanting to kill me? And they say, oh, it's not for any of the deeds. The deeds are fine with us. We don't have any problem with the deeds. It's that claim. But Jesus says, I want you to understand that those deeds are the works of the Father. When I healed that blind man, I was fulfilling the prophecy in your own law that says that the sign of the Messiah when he comes will be to bring sight to the blind. I'm just showing you by my deeds that I really am who I say I am. And, and so we not only see here the extreme wickedness of human nature, but we also see the extreme importance that Jesus places and attaches to his miracles. And John has been pointing that out as he's moved us slowly through the gospel, meticulously showing us these miracles, meticulously showing us these signs. He said, this is what it's all about. This is what's showing you who I am. And yet you still, because of your sinfulness, because of your evil, your own nature, you're refusing to hear what I have to say. He said, we're not going to, we're not going to, Stone you because of a good work. We like the good works. Those are nice. They're very entertaining. But it's blasphemy. You make yourself, you who are a man, make yourself out to be God. And then Jesus quotes this little verse out of Psalm 82, verse 6, that quite honestly, you've probably read a hundred times, and if you've read it carefully, you've said, what? What, what does that mean? It's a hard one to interpret. And you probably almost passed over like many do and said, well, that probably is a scribal error or something. You know, surely that's not really in the Word. Well, Jesus says that's a part of God's revealed, holy, inerrant, authoritative Word. And we need to understand what He's saying there, if we possibly can. He uses it in verse 35 to show, or 34 and 35 to show us two things. One, to show us that ultimately it's speaking of Him although it doesn't seem to be necessarily in, in chapter 82 uh, or the 82nd Psalm. But ultimately, it's showing that he is who he says he is. But he's also showing something far deeper, I think. Now, people look at Psalm 82, and they've, they've come with all sorts of ideas. What in the world is he talking about? The psalmist, I mean. Someone said, well, he's, he, he perhaps is talking about the, uh, he's perhaps talking about the judges. You know, the, those judges of Israel who were corrupting the courts of the land, and it talks about that in the first part of that psalm. They're called gods because they are called to exercise justice fundamentally in a, in a, in a right sort of way, and they're failing to do it. But, but the psalmist says, but you're like gods. You're like under God. You're like a, one who has the Word of God, the authority of God, and you're speaking that, and you're supposed to apply that, and you're not doing it. 
We're supposed to be rescuing those who are in poverty. Reach 82 is built on the first part of that psalm that we'll have next Sunday night. That that first part of that psalm merely talks about, you know, uh, God judging in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. And the judges were not doing that. And some have said, well, the psalmist is saying they were in the place of God in, among the people, and they failed to do their job. Others, others have interpreted that in the rabbinic tradition as being God addressing angelic powers. Uh, angelic powers who were messengers of God over all the nations, and that these angelic powers had abused the power they'd been given them and had fallen because of that. While others believe that God is addressing Israel at the time of the giving of the law. Because he says, you have received the word of God. You have received the truth of God. And I think there's good evidence that the, the rabbis, at least in the, in the uh, period of time before Jesus and up to Jesus, they believe that that probably was the right interpretation. And I, I think that's what he's doing. I think he's talking about, you have received the, the word of God you have the authority of Almighty God because you have the Word and you ought to express it. And, and just expressing you're kind of like little gods because you have God's Word. Live it out. Live it out. Live it out. And teach it to all that you come in contact with. And Jesus says, if God says that, why do you struggle that I say that I have come from God and I am the Son of God? But he used it for one more thing. He used it to show his belief in and his adherence to what we might call the, the authority and the purity and the unbreakableness of God's Word and God's truth. You see there in that parenthetical note, he says, the Scriptures, or the Scripture, singular, cannot be broken. You can't negate what God has said. You, you may not always understand it. You may have to struggle with it from time to time. But you cannot negate what God, what God has said will always stand. It cannot be broken. It will not be broken. It will abide for all time. Jesus had a strong understanding of the authority of God's Word. and We would do, best, we would do well to have that same view. We would do well to understand that God has spoken. Now, when Jesus talks about his word will not be broken, he's talking about the, what we call the Old, Old Testament now, the Old Covenant. Because that's all the written word that they had in that day. They didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and Acts, and, and all the epistles of Paul, and the, and the epistles of Peter, and, and Revelation, all those New Testament books that we have now. They're brought together by the Holy Spirit and bound as the New Covenant writings. But he's talking about the Old Covenant. He's talking about the Old Testament. He said, that is God's Word, and it will not be broken, and it will not fail. He refers to it as your law. You know, it even says in your law. He's not saying it's not our law. He's not saying it's not our scripture. He's not saying it's not to be held to by us who are on this side of the cross. He's merely looking at them and saying, even you don't understand what God was saying as he's prophesying, as he's pointing forward that there will be a Messiah to come. And when I stand before you and do all the works of the Messiah, do all the miracles of the Messiah, and I say to you, I am he, 
you, you still struggle with that. You just don't see. You don't understand what your law has taught you. That's really the crux of this conflict, isn't it? I mean, that's really what's taking place here. Jesus saying, I have come through the turning of the water and the wine. The new covenant has come. The old is passing away, and the new covenant is about to be established through my death on the cross. And, and these who are, are so bound to and so wrapped up in the old covenant, they say, oh, we can't accept that kind, we, we can't accept that kind of talk or that kind of change. It, it, it destroys everything that we believe. It, below, it destroys everything. But Jesus says, look, it's not destroying anything. The Scripture cannot be annulled. It cannot be broken. It, it cannot be denied. It is fact and will stand forever. It won't be set aside or proved false. It will always stand. See that as Jesus' understanding of God's written Word and understanding that you and I should also have of that same word. And he goes on, he says, look, the Father has sanctified. Verse 36 says, do you say to him, talking about himself, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, that you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? I, I love that he says it. He says, God has sanctified him. Literally, it means God has set him apart for his very own. God has set his son apart as the Savior, as the Redeemer. He sanctified him and set him apart and sent him into the world to do the work that only he can do. We didn't need an economist. We didn't need a doctor. We didn't need a, 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 any of those things. We needed a Savior. And that's the, the purpose for which he comes. That's the purpose for which he lives. And that's the purpose for which, which he will soon die as he came into the world. He said, if you don't believe the words, if you, if you won't believe me, if I do them though you don't believe me, believe the works themselves. If you don't believe the words that I say, believe the works that I do. Because they point to everything I say. You see, a lot of people that come into the world, a lot of people come in the world today, they say, oh, I've got, I've got a word from God, man. I've got something to tell you that's all new and fresh, and you've never heard this before. I'm telling you something brand new. It's from God. God has spoken this to me, and, and you're hearing it for the first time right here. My first word with them, to them would be, show me the works. Show me some signs. Show me some things that prove that you do the work of God. Let me find a blind man that's been blind since birth, and, and let me stand him here before you, and let's see this man see now, because that's the work of the one who brings new revelation from God. Them in a world that wants something new all the time. They, they want something spectacular that's beyond the ordinary. I mean, the, the Bible, I mean, it's 2,000 years old at its earliest point. Give, give us something new. Give us something more exciting. Let me tell you something. God has spoken. 
in this word. God has spoken clearly, and Jesus believed this was God's, this was God's authoritative word to you and me 2,000 years later. He proves it in this passage. And I think Jesus is saying you would do well to hear it. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. There it is again. If you just look at the works, you will see that I am who I say I am. If you'll just look at the works, you'll see that the words I speak are absolutely true. And they wanted to seize him again. They wanted to arrest him. They wanted to take him away again because it just didn't fit their paradigm of what the Messiah would look like. It just didn't fit. So he withdrew. After confronting the Jews all over again with their blindness and the irrationality of their hatred toward him, I mean, think about it just a minute, honestly. It's totally irrational for people who say, we have the revelation, we have the the word of God, we have the law of God, we have the prophets who have all been pointing to this one man in history. Everything from Genesis chapter 3 on, clearly, and and even back to chapter 1 for that matter, but everything in the Scripture, everything in the Old Covenant has been pointing to this one. All the prophecies are there for them to see, and they are the ones who profess to know the prophecies. And they're almost like a two-year-old that says no. You ever had one of those? I did. I had three, not four. I had three. And there were times when they would say, no. It, it was probably many times in their best interest to say yes. Well, it was always in their best interest to say yes. Because they were saying no to something I was telling them as their father. And they wouldn't listen. No. That's the way these Jews are, these, these Jewish leaders. Everything they know, everything they've been taught is coming to bear on this life of Jesus. And they say, no. We don't care about the works. We see the works. We're not stoning you for the works. Works are okay. We're stoning you because you claim to be one with the Father. That really is the crux of the whole matter. That really is central to everything Jesus has had to say and everything that he's done. Everything that he's called us to. That's why that's so important in our day. In, in, in 2013, nothing has changed. We live in a day where people say, no, I don't, I don't, I don't want to believe there's only one way. I, I was reading an article just this morning, as a matter of fact. I printed it yesterday, but I didn't get around to read it until this morning uh, from a publication talking about the whole centricism, uh, centricism, synergism. I'll get it in a minute. I have to work my way there. In, in many of our churches today, that they're, tr- they're letting the culture, you know, speak to the church rather than the church speaking to the culture. We talked about that last week. And God said in, in Isaiah chapter 5, the people of God can't do that. That's, that's just not the right thing. You, you, you don't call right, wrong, light, dark, and all that. But, but this article show, it used illustrations of several of, of major denominations in our country today that are just letting the, the culture speak to it. And basically they're saying, you know, we, we can't go with this thing of Jesus being the only way. One denomination this year at their denominational meeting were 
gathering together a new hymn book, and they brought together to vote on the hymns that would be the new hymn books. You know what hymn they rejected for it? They wanted some new hymns in it. You know what hymn they rejected as being totally unacceptable? It used to be songs like, you know, uh, uh, the one about being a Christian soldier. You know, that's too militaristic. Not this year. This year they voted no to in Christ alone. Major denomination. They said that's just not fitting for our pluralistic culture today. Jesus wants us to see that it's not about pluralism. It's not about multiculturalism. It's, it's not about trying to just say everything's okay. It's about focusing on what really is the crux. And here's the crux. Here's what matters. I and the Father are one. I've showed you the works. I've lived the life. Now listen to the words. The Jewish leaders didn't like it, and they wanted to, they wanted to seize them again. So verses 41, uh, 40 through 42, actually, are, are just sort of a summary verse. They, don't, they just kind of give a general idea. They said, okay, so he went away again, and he went back beyond the Jordan where it started about three years earlier. Before John was beheaded, when John was baptizing in the Jordan, he went back where it all started. When he got there, he, he began to teach, no doubt. And many were coming to him. And, and they were saying this. Uh, this is a great statement. They were saying while John performed no sign. John didn't do miracles. John performed no sign whatsoever. He just merely called us to repentance, walked us into the water, baptized us for repentance, and we came up out and went away. He didn't heal anybody. He didn't feed anybody. He didn't make blind. He didn't do any signs. John performed no sign. Yet everything John said about this man was true. Now, they're seeing that by faith. Because, you see, everything John said has not yet happened. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's not coming for another month or so. Behold Him who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But yet because they saw the signs and they heard the teaching and they connected the dots and by the Holy Spirit's inspiration and illumination, they saw this man really is who John said he is. And verse 42, some reverse, no numbers, doesn't give us a, doesn't give us a roll call, but it just says many believed in him there. You see the great contrast here between those who should know and those who do know? Those who should know are those who are educated religiously above all the other people, those who, who have the greatest education, those who, who should be able to read the prophet and the law and say, you know, everything they said is being fulfilled in this man. They should have known that. They refused to like that stubborn two-year-old. It didn't fit their paradigm. It didn't fit their preconceived notions. But these, beyond the Jordan, probably very poor, 
probably rejected by many, would fit right in that first part of Psalm 82. Probably many who said, I, I, you know, we, we don't have a lot to offer. But that day when John said, this is the one, we've watched his life, we've watched his ministry, we've watched his miracles, we've heard what he said. Everything John said about him is true. And many believed. Sometimes in our own day, it's hard to separate faith from religion. But you've got to do that. So, oh, are you saying we shouldn't have religions? I didn't, I didn't say that. I, I didn't say we shouldn't have church. I didn't say we shouldn't have worship. Certainly we should. We're commanded to. But I want you to understand, you've got to separate just going to church from what these people beyond the Jordan did, really believing that he is who he said he was. He didn't give them a formula. He didn't say, okay, if you here, let me give you a five-verse prayer. If you'll pray this prayer, say it over, really mean it, you'll be saved. No, he just said, repent and believe. Paul said, if you believe in your heart, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Not a lot of religion in that. Not a lot of ritual in that. Not a lot of uh, one, two, three, do these three steps in that. It's just confess that Christ is Lord before men. And believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. That's the call. Obviously, these people beyond the Jordan, when they said, well, John performed no sign, everything John said about this man was true, and and they believed him in there, they they couldn't at this point, they couldn't at this point believe in their heart God raised him from the dead, could they? That was yet to come. I think what John is saying here is they saw that he was Lord. They saw that he and the Father were one. They saw that great Trinitarian truth that we only understand beyond the cross fully. Well, we see it revealed fully. Maybe we still don't understand it fully. The great truth of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father sent the Son as our propitiation, our our Savior, our atoning sacrifice, died on the cross to bear our sins, and then the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to our life, and our eyes are open, our hearts are open, and we believe that He is who he said he was, that he is one with the Father, that he is when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's where intimacy with God comes in, folks. Our intimacy with God is related to our knowledge of Jesus Christ, knowing him, knowing that he is who he said he was, and, and discovering that in God's word, living in it. And living by it. Religious leaders didn't like him. Called him a blasphemer. But he was merely speaking the truth. We live in a day when we want to say, well, but can't we just, can't we just coexist? You've seen the bumper stickers, coexist. You know, you got the... Christian symbol and the Jewish symbol and the Islamic symbol and the Buddhist symbol and the Wiccan symbol and every other symbol 
you can imagine. You know, that sounds so nice. And if Jesus was a liar, that's nice. If Jesus was a fraud, that's nice. Let's do just get along because all, we're all the same. It makes no difference. Whether you're Christian or Jew or Wiccan or whatever, it doesn't matter. The only problem is he wasn't a liar and he wasn't a fraud. He wasn't playing games. He wasn't an egomaniac who just needed all the attention. We have a lot of those around. He was the Savior. He was the Son of the living God. He was the way, the truth, and the life. He was the only one who could come to the Father through. Someone asked a question this past week and Something I was reading, I don't remember what it was. It said, if you're a Christian and you really believe this stuff, you really do believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that the that he and the Father are one. That he is the Savior of the world. But no other religion will suffice. No lack of religion, no lack of faith will suffice. Only faith in Him. If you really believe this stuff, how much must you hate your friends, your co-workers, your relatives, if you won't tell them? How much must you how must must how much must you hate them to not tell them? So oh, I love that person so much I don't want to offend them. Offend them. Offend them with the truth. Because it is the truth. He is the truth. He is the Son of God. And he and the Father are one. And we are adopted into his family. And now we are sons and daughters, children of God. Not in the same vein as Jesus. But we are in his family because of his work and his work alone. Do we really believe it? I guess that's the question. Let's pray. Father, you knew our need. Our need was because of our sin. Our profound rebellion. Our alienation from you. 
our death spiritually. And you sent a Savior. Father, for that, we are grateful. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, speak by your Holy Spirit, your word to us, and draw us close. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.